This Kendra is where they make their mark. This is the time where you've got to turn the table. You've got to take advantage and ride this wave in this momentum. Look out! And welcome to a special coach's corner here during the COVID-19 crisis. We thought we would practice social distancing very well indeed. Callum Williams here, um, sort of, alongside the head coach of Minnesota United, Adrian Heath. Um, Gaffer, it's obviously a very intriguing time at the moment, unpleasant to say the least. How are you coping at the moment? Um, as well as can be expected, I think. Um, you know me, Callum, more than most. and My glasses nearly always are full and I'm trying to see positives in it, but it's, it's, it's a little bit difficult because we're in sort of uncharted uh, waters here. This is something that we've never been through before. Um, getting on to nearly 60 now, and I've never seen anything like this, you know. When you consider we've got nearly, was it nearly 40,000 people dead and, you know, it's going to go up from that. We know that. So, yeah, it's, we're in challenging times and, um, you know, it's not been easy for everybody, but uh, it's something that we're going to have to, stick together with, do as we told, listen to the people who know far more about it than we do. And uh, as I say, if we can all help everybody by self-isolating and stay out of each other's way, which I know is not easy and it's difficult, but uh, we've got to beat this together. And the only way we do it is by doing what we're told. So what have you been up to then during the self-isolation? What, what sort of stuff have you been watching on the telly? Oh, TV. Um, mainly sports stuff, you know, where I'm like... Um, <laughs> Everything from uh, the All or Nothing series, you know, the Manchester City stuff, and there's the Leeds documentary on there, Take Us Home, for people who haven't seen it. The new Maradona film. I watched the Senna movie again, the motor racing movie about Senna. Mostly sports stuff. Um, although it's given me a time to sort of watch and get back up to date with a lot of stuff that's going on back home in England and watching some of the series from there, you know, whether it be Luther or Broadchurch. Line of Duty. I'm up to date with Line of Duty now, which I think is oh. fantastic. Um, Broadchurch, as I say, I love the fall. You know, so there's some good stuff out there, and uh, it's one of the few times I've had time to actually sit down and watch a, a series nearly back to front and really in, in in touch with it all. So it's given me time to catch up, Cal. But uh, I've got to be honest, I'm missing work. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say everybody's in the same situation, Gaffer. Are there any recommendations? things to watch that you can give to the viewers? Um, the last thing I just finished watching, and probably more for people in countries where they play cricket, I've just watched the test. I don't know if you've seen it, the Australian tour to uh, England last year when the World Cup was on and the Ashes tour. It's a fly-on-the-wall documentary on uh, on Amazon, uh-huh. about the Australian test cricket team. Really, really good, interesting. As I say, I watched the Maradona movies. You know, he's always been my favourite player. A lot of stuff on that I've not seen before. A lot of footage that never seen and he's quite candid about his cocaine addiction and when he got into it in Napoli so lots of lots of stuff that for me are really interesting about the dynamics of sports within the dressing room and the coaches so you know I think there's a lot of stuff out there now if you're a football fan especially or a sports fan. Mm. Yeah I believe so we're recording this on the 30th of March I believe on April 1st this is not an April Fool's joke I believe the next series of uh, the Sunderland documentary um, yeah. we will be coming on uh, at some stage. So uh, make sure you you watch that. Uh, Sunderland, one of your former clubs yeah. as a coach, which we'll, we'll get to a little later on during this interview. Um, how are the players at the moment, psychologically and, and, and physically? How are they keeping fit? Well, physically, they're good. We're, you know, we've had a, good, a lot of dialogue, obviously, and uh, Josh, the, the fitness uh, coach, has, has been well in touch with them. I think they're on their third, third programme at this moment in time as we speak. So uh, they've been working hard. The one thing about this group is they're, they're a really good group to work with. You know, they're very dedicated, very professional. They get the work done. So I don't have a problem from that. Obviously, the more you're away from each other, the mental aspect, you know, we, we, we probably start touching on that a little bit in the next week. I think there's certainly a lot more dialogue between me and the coaches and the players. Um, you know, because as I say, Cal, you know, this is something we've never been through before. So we're all sort of working our way through it, really. Mm. Are things still moving, I guess, as normally as they can? Like, for example, are you still, in, still getting calls from, from agents about deals and whatnot? Yeah, we've, that's the one area that we, we know, we're trying to cover every eventuality where, wherever we land. You know, do we 
Do we cram a full season in from June? Is it going to be off a season? We, we don't really know. But the one thing I do know is that we've got to keep moving this forward. We had a really good year last year. We've had a good start. The first two games have been terrific for us. But the minute that we get to the stage where we're back to normal, you know, I'd still like to have had, had one or two players to the group. Um, you know, it was no secret that we were in for Reynoso. And that's been put on the back burner a little bit because of what's gone on. But, you know, so, yeah, there's still lots of stuff going on. Mark Watson's still very, very busy and active with agents around South America and in Europe, looking at areas that we feel will strengthen us and, and push us on to the next level. Mm. In terms of um, the, the players themselves, who have, you, who have you spoken to the most over the last couple of weeks? Well, it's been difficult for the South Americans, obviously, because although my Spanish is not bad, it's, it's difficult when you're on the phone. So we've been sort of talking through them with other people. Um, but no, usually Ethan Finley's and Ike's, the people like that who are, who are, who are really an integral part of the group. And Ethan's the, the sort of go-between between it, the, the players and the squad and the, the, the MLS. He's the sort of union representative, if you like. So I've spoke to Ethan and trying to keep in touch with him and, and find out from their side what they feel is going to happen. Because, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's more than one person's opinion. You know, there's the league... You know, the MLS have their opinion, but then the league have the players' union as well. So it's not just a case of, you know, waiting for orders to come through and everybody goes ahead with it. There's a lot of people that have to, you know, sit down and talk it through and come up with the best idea for everybody. Yeah. We'll talk more Minnesota United a little later on. Uh, But for now, the reason why we're doing these series, hopefully we'll get the rest of your coaching staff at some stage as well, is because we want to get to know you. We want to get to know your staff a little better. Um, so let's move on to your playing career. I feel as though we've spoken a lot about your managerial career, which we'll get on to later as well. But your career, it's safe to say, was was very, very good. Stoke City, Everton, Espanyol, Aston Villa, Manchester City, back to Stoke, Burnley, Sheffield United, mm. Burnley. Uh, where do you think you were the, the happiest during your playing days? When I look back, I I was happy at every club I was at. You know, I'm very much, when I when I'm in, I'm all in. And when I went to any of them clubs, I tried to do everything I could to make us successful. And obviously, the more success you have, the people equate that with, oh, you must have been happier there. But I had three great years at Manchester City. You know, when I arrived at City, we were, I think we were fourth from bottom, finished sixth from top that year. And had a great time under my old Everton manager, Edward Kendall. Um, So when I look back, I had a great two and a half, three years at Burnley. You know, obviously, playing for Stoke City, the team that I'd supported with my grandparents and my dad from the age of four. I went to my first game at Stoke at the age of four and went virtually every week home and away until I signed for him at the age of 13. So, you know, I, I was fortunate, Cal, as you say, I had a good career, but obviously when you win the trophies that I won at Everton, it, you can't help but look back on that period of time with incredible affection because to win the league a couple of times, go to three FA Cup finals, you'd be cut winners' cup and you know, League Cup finals and British Super Cup, whatever. You can't go through them seasons and then sort of the trials and tribulations of getting to them finals and everything that entails without looking back with incredible fondness. And for me to sort of be part of a team that was the most successful in Everton's history, and you know how big the club is and what, what a story club it is. So, no, that was incredible times. But more importantly, I did it with the people who are still my best friends to this day, people I actually love dearly, and uh, I speak to them still weekly, you know, 20-odd 20, 20 years on. So, you know, it was a great time for us. Take me back to 88, 89, around about that time. You did something which uh, a lot of people don't do. A lot of English people, uh, players, need to do more, in my opinion. And you went and played abroad. Yeah. You played for Espanyol in La Liga. How was that personally and professionally for you? How different was it? Well, that, that particular team that we spoke about, the Everton team, was just starting to break up. And um, I didn't really want to go through a, a reinvention of that group, if you like. I, I got too much invested in the people who were leaving, the Peter Rees, Andy Gray, you know, uh, Gary Stevens, Trevor Stevens, Kemi Sheedy, people who... To this day, I still some of my best friends. So, and they were leaving then. So, something about European football had, had always intrigued me, you know. And I'd 
I had a big love of Italian football in the 80s with Maradona at Napoli. And, and obviously, most British people went on holiday if you went abroad to Spain. So we grew up with the Real Madrid-Barcelona thing. And obviously, Gary Lineker had left Everton and gone to play in Barcelona. And I'd stayed close to Gary. And I asked him about Espanyol. He said it's one of the better clubs in Spain. And obviously, living in Barcelona has got its compensations. Probably one of the best uh, best cities in the world, I would think. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was the right time. And it was a difficult time. I didn't realise that they'd they'd sold a lot of the players that had taken them to the UEFA Cup the, the year prior. Um, but I managed to work with one of the most controversial managers in Spanish football, a guy called Javier Clemente. It was a bit like Brian Clough, if you like. And um, so that was interesting. But no, I, I enjoyed my time there. Um, different football, different emphasis on possession was more... It was a more possession-based football in England in them days with 4-4-2. You got the ball forward, you got after it. But uh, no, I enjoyed it. And as I say, I had the, the beauty of living nearly a couple of years in, in Barcelona, which is probably one of the greatest cities in the world. What was it like it is now, Gaffer, where you see a lot of the times certain decisions are given um, in Spain where they wouldn't be in the UK or MLS, for example. You know, fouls seem a lot more consistent in, in a league like La Liga. Yeah, obviously the, the the big one was the foot up in England. You put your foot up, and if both of you did it, it was play on. In Spain, if your if your leg went the ball sort of knee eye, that was a foul guaranteed. The one thing I will say is it probably gave me a better appreciation, and maybe it's because of the climate, because it's so warm. You know, the, the possession, not turning the ball over cheaply, was a huge thing in Spain. And you know, I I was very much trying to press from the front and then I'd look around and they'd be sitting outside their own 18-yard box. They dropped off 70 yards and I was the mad English guy running around like an idiot up front. So they'd tell you to drop off. And so that was the first time actually that it, that came into sort of my, into my uh, knowledge really of dropping off and, and the line of confrontation being at different parts of the field rather than the full press. Sometimes we drop off against teams who were really good on the ball. So yeah, it was a, it was a, an interesting period, something that stayed with me when I went into coaching later. Mm. Well, then you went to Manchester City, obviously, as you mentioned, you, you had yeah. several successful years there. You, you've got a, a music story for us in terms of your time at Manchester City, a, a band that are very well known with our fan base. Yeah, Oasis, obviously the, the classic song Wonderwall, which has become synonymous now with Minnesota United. Um, what people don't realise is that, obviously, people realise that Noel and Liam are big, big City fans. But in them days, they were, they were an aspiring band. They just got together. And they used to come to the, uh, our training facility and clean the players' cars. And even in them days, they'd be rowing outside while they were you know, cleaning the guys' cars. And Niall Quinn, who was probably my best pal at the time at, at City, he got quite close to him and he, he kept saying to me, I think these guys are going to be good, you know. I, mean, I don't know, they... I've never seen a group argue as much in all my life. They'd be, you know, they'd be washing the cars and it'd be kicking off all around the car. And But as we say, the rest is history. They got themselves going and they became one of the, the best rock and roll bands in, in the world. But strange enough, I remember them more for cleaning the guys' cars than the music back in them days. <laughs> music is a very big part of your life as well, isn't it? Um, and I imagine living in Manchester in the 90s and that sort of era. It must have been a fabulous time for music. Well, I was so lucky. Kelly had the 80s in Liverpool, going through the Frankie Goes to Hollywood. You know, you got your name it at the time. It, it, it was so big, the music scene at that particular time. You know, China Crisis, the Christians, Mighty War, everybody was coming through. And then I ended up going to Manchester, which is like only 40 miles down the road. And then it starts again, you know, Oasis, Stone Roses, all that type of stuff, the spiral carpets. You know, you could go out any night of the week, go to a, a, a little venue and there'd be a band on you being, oh my God, these are so good. You know, two months later, they were like top of the charts and selling out venues all over the world. So I was fortunate in the, the, the two eras in Manchester and Liverpool, I dropped on when there was a huge boom in the music industry. So that was pretty good, pretty cool at the time. Yeah, you, uh, as I said, you were at Manchester City then for a while. Um, but then, 1992, you went from the first division down to the third division. Yeah. It's the only time you, you played at that level. And I get the feeling you would have only dropped down to that level for one specific team, and that team is, is Stoke City. Yeah, it was a chance to go home. I, I realised I was coming towards the, not, not the latter part of my career, 
Was after that, I went to Burnley, and it went great at Burnley for, for nearly three years. But going home and allowing my parents to actually go and see me play again for Stoke City was something that I wanted to do. We went to Wembley. We played in the Autoglass final, which is the, the cup competition for the lower league clubs. And, you know, winning that game at Wembley and hearing 50,000 Stoke fans sing Delilah is something that I will never forget. And it's one of the, the biggest memories that I have and that playing it in a, in a final at Wembley for Stoke City with not only all my family, but nearly all my friends. Nearly all my friends are huge Stoke fans. So to go and play for Stoke and win at Wembley was something I'll never forget. It was a really, yeah, it was a great memory for me. Yeah. And then you mentioned then you, you went on to Burnley and Sheffield United and, and Burnley again. Yeah. And, and you were coming towards the end of your playing days. Yeah. Did you, did you know at that stage, did, did you notice no. you were a bit slower? No, or? it was strange. I got to Burnley and I think the first year I got 26 goals. I got player of the year. And people thought I was, I was probably 34. I think people thought I was going there for, you know, an aging player just seeing his time out. But I've never been that guy. Mm. You know, I, I'm, I'm full on every time I played. And I loved my time at Burnley. We managed to get promotion, went to a couple of finals at Wembley. And that was really instrumental in me getting the job. You know, I, I left to go with Edward Kendall as a player coach at Sheffield United. And then I end up, you know, the chairman rings me and goes, have you seen the papers? I went, no, what, what, what's in the papers? But I lived in Manchester at the time and I travelled to Burnley every day and he went, well, the support, there's, there was a poll in the local newspaper last night and you won it hands down to be the new manager. And I said, well, I don't think I'm ready for that yet, Frank. You know, Frank Teasdale, the chairman, he said, well, you better take it because the fans want you. <laughs> so I, I take the job on the Wednesday. My son was born on the Thursday. I meet the team on the Friday at Bristol. We have one little training session and we win the game 2-0. Hmm. And the headline in the local paper was... He's tactical genius. <laughs> when you consider I'd been with him maybe 25 minutes, yeah. I think that might have been a, a little bit of a stretch, that headline. But that goes to show you how people perceive certain things that go on. But uh, I had a great few years at Burnley. Great little club. Now, obviously, doing fantastic under Sean Dyche and the big team in the big league. And uh, I don't think Sean Dyche gets enough praise and publicity for doing what he's doing because I don't think people realise... This is a town of 70,000, 80,000 people. Mm. For them to, to keep, you know, consistently now competing with the likes of City, United, Everton, Liverpool, all them big clubs around them, speaks volumes for the way the club's been run and the job that Sean Dyche is doing. Yeah. And before we take a little break here, Adrian, um, coaching has always been on your mindset, hasn't it? I remember you telling me a while ago, you, you started thinking about it in your mid-20s, really, didn't you? Yeah, I think it was about 24 I got my first coaching license. I went on the, the UEFA B license, and uh, which I enjoyed. I was always interested in it, Cal. I was always the guy wanting to know why we were doing things. I was the guy who always put his hand up and asked the coach, can we do this? What about that? Is that not going to be better? And, and really listening and, and trying to find out why they were doing the things that they were doing. Because the one thing I did, you know, I, I enjoyed playing so much, and I, I, I still think it's the greatest thing in the world. But the nearest thing to doing that is actually coaching and going on the training facility and having an influence about the, how the team plays. And, you know, that's why I do what I do. Mm. OK, we'll take a short break and uh, much more to come from the head coach of Minnesota United, Adrian Heath. So the one thing that I want to ask you before we, we really dive into to your coaching career, Gaffer, is um, England. You played a number of times for the under-21s, but didn't manage to get on the field for the national team, uh, the senior national team. Does that still irk you? It does. I got, um, I got selected to play against Germany of all teams as well. Uh, Bobby Robson was the manager and uh, it was in early December. And I was top goal scorer in the Premier League at the time by about six goals. Started the season really well. I think I was on 13 goals after about 14, 15 games. So things were going really well. And I went to watch Manchester United play Barcelona on the Wednesday with Peter Reid. And um, Bobby Robson was at the game and he pulled me to one side and said, you'll be in the squad 
for the next international. So I, I was so happy because, you know, how patriotic I am and what it means for me to play for my country. And uh, I was so happy. And then I did my ACL, MCL and meniscus on the Saturday in a, in a pretty bad tackle. So, and I never got the opportunity again. So it's something that still rankles with me to this day. You know, when I think of some of the people who've got caps and, uh, but, you know, I can't complain. I had a, had a great career and not only the things that we've won, but the longevity of it as well. I played till I was nearly 36, you know, yeah. considering I made my debut at 17. I, I can't complain, Cal. No, and as you say, you went on to have a very good coaching career as well. So you went into the job at Burnley. Yeah. What were the main differences you noticed from being a player then to becoming the head coach? Well, there's more than one eight o'clock in a day, you know, there's <laughs> two of them and uh, one's in the morning, one's at night. And no, I think the most incredible thing is the hours that you do, because at that time we were, we were all first division. Uh, and let me tell you, we didn't have the staff that people have now. Mm. It was like three of us doing everything. And me being as I was at that particular time, I wanted to do everything. So taking the coaching in the morning, having a meeting with all the staff in the afternoon in the ownership group, then driving down to Brentford four hours from Burnley to watch a game on, on the night time, coming back at two in the morning and then starting again. And I remember my wife saying to me, you, you're going to kill yourself. You carry on like you are. And I almost did. I had a crash on the M6, fell asleep on the motorway, went right up to the embankment. And um, that was a real wake-up call then that I'm going to have to start to sort of prioritise and delegate a little bit more if I'm going to do this job properly. And uh, and it started really well. The Burnley job was going really well. And I shouldn't have left Cal, but the, the lure of going back to Everton as assistant manager with Edward Kendall was was too much. And I, and I And I shouldn't have gone. The club offered me a new five-year deal. You know, I had a great relationship with the directors and the chairman at the time, a guy called Frank Teasdale. God bless him. And um, I should have stayed and I, because I was, I was starting to get to know what I was going to be as a coach. I I'd so, suddenly started to understand which way I was going to be. And, um, and then I went to being the assistant again at Everton with, with Howard. And that only lasted a year. We, we both we got fired and... Um, I know how much devastated he was, but I was also because it was always my ambition to go back there and be the coach one day. And I felt as though that was maybe was my opportunity. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was a difficult decision, but the, the lure of Everton was just too much for me, Cal. Yeah, you, you mentioned there as well. You, you started to understand what sort of a coach you were going to be. Um, how much have you changed from, from that particular moment to, to now? Because the game has changed a fair bit as well. Oh, yeah, the game's changing and you, you've got to change with it or you get left behind. I think I can delegate a lot more. I know what's more important on, on a weekly, the schedule of a week. I know when I need to be at my best. I know when I, I need to take control of the situation. Whereas in the beginning, you want to do everything. You want to be the guy who does everything. You want to do the warm-up. Then you want to do the main session. Then you want to do the warm-down. Then you want to do the debrief. Then you want to get it. And then eventually you come to understanding that the manager now it's so encompassing with everything that it tells, whether it be the press, whether it be working with your own directors and the ownership group, whether it be dealing with so many people. You know, I look at when I look at the staff now, I think when Aston Villa came here this, this season, they had something like 30 people with them. I can go back to Everton, there was like six people. Yeah. And then it was 30 people doing that job, you know, whether it be analysts, whether it be masseurs, whether it be dietitians, whether it be psychologists. All of them have come into the game over the last sort of 20-odd years. And when I started, there was none of that. It mm. was, you know, if you've got a problem, sort it out. Get your, you know, it's all tough love. You know, no, no arm around the shoulder and let's get on with this. It was like, you should be lucky that you're a professional footballer. Get on with it. I don't want to hear about that. You've got issues away from football. There was none of that. Thankfully, it's changed and the players have got a bit more of a... a, a, a and a group around them, you know, a, a team of people who can actually help them in virtually everything now. Well, you know, the thing is, with Aston Villa, while they've got so many staff, it's just because they're a massive club, aren't they? And a huge club. Well, they're a big club in danger of going into the championship, unfortunately, for you. <laughs> yeah, we'll save that conversation for another day. Uh, you yeah. mentioned Peter Reid there as well. Not only did you work with him at, at Sunderland, but also Leeds as well, several other clubs where you, you had a very good relationship. How 
how was it for you working with somebody who you were that close to, but also moving then from being the head coach to an assistant manager? Yeah, I think, well, you, I think for people who don't know Peter, people like you do know him. He's larger than life character. Um, never, you know, never, you're never in any, um, one, you're never wondering how he is because it's all out there. When he's angry, he's the angriest man in the world, you know, and when he's not ang the angriest man in the world, he's nearly the angriest man in the world. So there is two types. So you imagine working for him. But the great thing about working for Reedy is that he'll let you get on with your job. He would come in in the morning and I was working with a, a great old coach called Bobby Saxton in them days at Sunderland. And he would come in in the morning and go, what are you doing? And we'd tell him what the, the plan was and he'd go, okay, get on with it. But he was always there, never missed a session. A little bit like Fergie, really. He let people get on with their job. And um, no, Reedy was a great guy to work for. As I say, you, you were never ever under any illusions of what was expected, held everybody accountable. Um, no, so, and the fact that we had been such close friends going back to the days at Everton, we roomed together, I think, for maybe four or five years. So we know each other really, really well, but it still didn't even stop him giving me a volley when he felt as though needed, everybody needed to be livened up a little bit. But uh, no, great, great man, great football man, um, still involved, still working with Paul Jewell at Wigan, you know, and um, he was another integral part of my growth as a coach, I feel, because... I then started to know what, what I wanted to be. Peter was very much of, these are my guys, hands on, whereas I still want to be certain days of the week when, it, when I feel as though it's really important. I feel as though that's the time then I have to get over the message that I want. Mm. But there was always uh, a lust and a, and a want and a yearning from you to become a head coach again because eventually you, you did go back to being the first team manager and you went to Sheffield United there. A fairly big club, Gaffer. There must have been a lot of yeah. to deal with at that stage. Yeah, it was that was a difficult one, Cal. I've never been too embarrassed to say that I couldn't I couldn't handle the situation. Reedy really told me before I took the job that, that he heard there was a lot of rumblings going on behind the scenes with the takeover and there was a two groups fighting for control of the club. Uh, no not much different than it is now, actually. They're going through the same thing yeah. now. Um, but it was a, it was the right club at the wrong time. You know, I'd been there before with Howard Kendall and I knew it was a terrific club. Um, I really like the people, the supporters are very passionate. But I just couldn't cope with it. And I, I, I resigned after about four months. Uh, I couldn't cope with uh, what was going on. Um, as I Do you regret that? I regret resigning because I had three years of my contract left. I should have, you know, I should have called the people out who needed calling out and they'd have probably fired me, which in hindsight... But I did the right thing for me. You know, at this particular time in my life, I couldn't cope with what was going on. I couldn't understand how there were certain factions within a football club who didn't want the club to do well, told lies. And that's what, you know, that was what I was working with day in, day out. And after we lost at home to Port Vale, and, you know, they had a particularly good team at the time. It was John Rudge's team that had gone through the league. But I, for me, that was the final straw. And I went upstairs and resigned and... Um, I don't regret resigning, but I regret letting the people off who, who should have been called out in public. And, um, you know, that's the, my only regret of the situation. Mm -hmm. But taking the job, no, because it was the right club, but at the wrong time. Yeah, football politics, it happens at every club, doesn't it? It, it just is what it is. Um, you it does, but the problem is, Cal, when you have too many, too much of it, ultimately it transmits to the field. And that's one of the things that, you know, all the best clubs you look at them consistently about a good ownership group. They've let people get on with the job, not been too much interference. And that's why the results have been as good as they have at times. You know, so I think there was a, certainly a lesson for me to be learned from that. One club that's had plenty of uh, politics uh, around itself is, is Coventry City. And yeah. it's a club that you were caretaker of twice. Is that yeah. the club that you should have got full-time? The second time, yeah, I understood the first time because I came in with Peter and they wanted to go a different direction. But, you know, Mickey Adams came in and we, we did a really good job for a period of time. And then Mickey, uh, Mickey moved on and I took over in caretaker and we had some good results and it was going really well. And I, I thought I got the job. And um, that was probably the most disappointed I've been in, in football management, not getting that job. Because I think I'd worked hard to get the job. Um, and the players wanted me to get the job. and. That was probably 
the main reason that I left England to come to the States. That was the disappointment behind that. And I was so angry at the time. And then Phil Rawlings, who was a director at Stoke City at the time, is a good friend of mine. He decides he wants to, you know, start a club in America. And he said, he called me one night and said, listen, I'm going to start a club in America. We're going to go to Austin, Texas, where he was living at that particular time. And said, I want to build the best football club outside of the MLS. I want to be the best minor league sports team in the whole of American sport. And you can come and run it from the beat, from the bottom. It's quite funny, actually. I go home and I tell my wife that. And my son at the time, Harrison, said, what's the team called? I said, there's no name at the minute. Where do they play? I said, we haven't got a training facility or a training or a football stadium yet. What colour is the strip? I said, we haven't got a strip. We haven't got a strip. And my wife's looking at me thinking, and you think this is a good idea? Sure, yeah. That's so much it was in its infancy at the time. We had nothing. But the, 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 the sort of, the excitement of trying to grow a, com- a complete football club from the bottom up, was really exciting for me. And I'd been to the, the States the year before with Coventry and we played in Portland, played at Portland Timbers and I think there were 17,000 there and I thought, this is, this is getting better. It's taking off. And, you know, I started to read up about the league and obviously the MLS now was starting to get a little bit better, a little bit bigger and the ownership groups were getting more powerful. And I decided I'll go for it. You know, so it was a, a leap of faith really, but it was probably the best decision I ever made because, you know, I went to live in Austin for three years, which is a great place. And we built a really good minor league team. Mm. By the end of that third year, Phil Rawlings now is starting to get itchy feet and wants to look at the MLS. As a meeting with the MLS, and they, at that particular time, they didn't want a third team in, uh, in Texas. They'd already got Dallas and Houston. But did say, have a look in the, you know, in the, the, the southeast. Mm. So Phil went and had a look at down that eastern uh, Broadwalk down there, and he eventually settles on my and, and Orlando. Wasn't sure what it was going to be, wasn't sure what it was going to look like, but we took the leap of faith and we went there. And Pat Clark, a great journalist of the area, had a big meeting with us on the opening day and interviewed us and said to us after you know after the interview had finished, he went, "I'd like to wish you luck, gentlemen, but you've got no chance." And uh, we always reminded Pat, you know, two years later when we had 62,000 there on the opening day of the season that uh, maybe we, we, we saw a little bit of something that he didn't. Mm. And you did go on to become the best minor league team across the United States because you won multiple championships. Um, yeah. You had fabulous crowds in USL as well. Mm. Um, and a, a fairly good roster as well. How fondly do you look back on your time in Orlando? Because I, I know it wasn't as, as easy as as people seem to make it out, because there were times as well, I remember you telling me, driving up and down the, the highway with the players yeah. in the back of the van and stuff. I mean, you really had to work at this. Yeah, it was. It was strange because it was, it was me and Ian Fuller at the time and a guy called Bobby Murphy and Fuller came as a player coach and, you know, that was it. That was, that was the full staff. So we used to drive the vans and we'd play Friday night and play Saturday night and we'd play travel all day Saturday and play Sunday. And considering where I'd come from to be doing that again, but I, I took an awful lot of satisfaction out of it. Building that club gave me a lot of pleasure in doing it. Great people I worked with, some great individuals of the players, you know, people like Rob Valentino now who's an assistant at Atlanta, Anthony Pulis, who now is an assistant with Inter Miami. You know, I, I they they came and played with me and then I got them on the coaching road and to see them doing well gives us a great deal of satisfaction. But no, it, it was it was really, really good times. And it was, you know, you had a guy with many hats. One day you were the coach, next day you were the driver. Then you were the, you know, you were going to meet the bank manager looking at overdrafts. It was, it was, it was a, it was a busy time, but a really enjoyable period of my time. And I think it was good for my coaching as well, because it literally was, this is the group we've got and we're going to have to make this work. Mm-hmm. And I think for the first 100 games, we've still got the best record in, in the history of soccer in America. So uh, it went really well. What was that story you were telling me before about you played a USL game, I think, on the Friday. You drove overnight to play, was it Newcastle on the Saturday and beat them? Yeah, which was great because obviously Ian Fuller's a big Newcastle fan. He was devastated. We we played on the Friday night and uh, I think we were in, uh, I think we were in Wilmington and South Carolina. Mm. So we played Friday night we drove through the night, got back Saturday morning, 
lads went to bed. We played Newcastle in front of 20 odd thousand people at the night time and uh, the following day, and we managed to win the game. And this was a week, just maybe eight days before the Premier League season was starting. And that was the year that they finished in Europe. And <laughs> I, remember, I remember Fuller being beside himself thinking, we're going to get relegated. You know, they can't even beat us. Like, you know, but we, we had a particularly good team. And uh, it was strange after the game that Alan, um, uh, Alan Pardew yeah. was the manager, came to us after the game and said, we were, you were miles better than we thought you were going to be. And I thought that was an eye-opener, that, that, that the way that the game was improving in the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, Alan Pardew, who's been big clubs in England, likes of, you know, uh, Crystal Palace and West Ham United, for him to say you were miles better than we thought you were going to be was a, a testimony to what the players did, actually. Well, that was two games, two days. And that was, you know, that, was, that wasn't unheard of in them days. No, no USL back in those days for sure. But then you took Orlando into Major League Soccer. And actually, if you look at the expansion campaign, it's one of the better expansion campaigns that have actually been had in Major League Soccer. So yeah. that gaffer and, and, and the plan that was in place, yeah. how disappointed were you when, when it all came to a rather abrupt end? Devastated, really, because six years in to go, we had the three-year plan and um, we knew the first year is going to be very, very difficult. People don't know how difficult... I remember after the first year in uh, in Orlando, the first person who called me was Jesse Marsh, and he'd he'd lost his job in uh, Montreal. Montreal. He'd gone there as an expansion manager, and people don't get it. And the first call I got was from Jesse saying, "Well done, I think you've had a great year." I think it's still to this day the third or fourth best expansion results that there's been. So, for a year, the following year, halfway through to to get fired. And in the circumstances that I got fired, I will never, ever get over that in terms of, I think, six and a half years in, I deserve more than finding out from a local radio station and a local newspaper that I'd been fired. Um, but that was the way they wanted to do things at the time. And uh, But they'll never take away the six and a half years I had. You know, It's something I'm, I'm incredibly proud of. Um, you can't put them six and a half years that we did, not just me, but a lot of people at that club, and then walk away and say, oh, well, that's, that's finished now. You know, Orlando will always be something more than just another football club to me. Always will be. Yeah, I was going to say, before we go to our final break, does, does it still hurt inside you? Do, do you still get frustrated with it when you think about it? Um, it's, it's a little bit frustrated and angry when you consider what's happened since I've left. You know, I, I don't take any satisfaction that they still haven't made the playoffs and they've had worse results since then. You know, but, you know, I, I've got so many friends and people down there who I know put so much work into that club you know it's uh, hopefully with uh, Oscar maybe it'll change for them and they'll you know sort of start to achieve what they, they, they want to achieve because there's a lot of good people still there Okay we'll go to our uh, last break and uh, stay with us because uh, more to come from the head coach of Minnesota United Adrian Heath next up we'll talk all about Minnesota United And welcome back to the final segment of our Coaches Special Podcast here. Callum Williams alongside the head coach of Minnesota United, Adrian Heath. Before we get into Minnesota United and how this came about, Gaffer, when we last spoke, you had just been let go by Orlando. Mm. What was it like for you psychologically then? And and did you have any sort of interest in in going back to the UK or or elsewhere in the world? Yeah, I had a couple of opportunities to go back to England. weren't quite right. One of them was very tempting. It was a club that I I uh, hold very close to my heart and it, it was a, a role within all-encompassing really from six years old up to the first team. And it was a case of being in charge of all that. And uh, that was a role that would have interested me. But I'd, I'd got the book too much still coaching, Cal. And I, I wanted to, as you always do, prove people wrong. You know, that's normally the motivation for a lot of people. Wanted to prove the people in Orlando that, you know, I, I still have what it takes to, to be successful here. Um, I had a couple of opportunities. I had a chance to go to Australia um, when the A-League was going, still going strong there now and getting better. But, you know, I, I decided to stick it out. After the event, I realised that maybe a rest didn't do me any harm. You know, I'd put in six and a half years of every single day working hard, 
24-7. And, you know, as I said, we didn't have an awful lot of staff in the beginning. So maybe the rest did me good. Um, so when the opportunity came to go to Minnesota, I jumped at it. You know, having been through the been through the uh, expansion once, I knew what was coming. I knew it wasn't going to wasn't going to frighten me what was ahead of me because I knew it was going to be tough um, and probably tougher than it was in Orlando for the simple reason that we weren't as prepared as Orlando you know sometimes you get this opportunity to go to MLS from the league and you can't say well come back to us in two years time that isn't happening you've got to take it when it comes and if we were if when I look back now on and off the field we were, we were still a little bit way behind where we should have been but incrementally we've got better to where we are today mm. yeah so how did the Minnesota thing come about and, and how how do managers usually get jobs? Is it a case of you get a call from your agent or do you apply or what's normal? Yeah, everything. Of all, all that, Cal, right. you know, agents, you know, the people within the club who make some certain decisions. Obviously, I've got to know Manny over the years with, with playing against um, uh, Minnesota over the years. They were NASL in them days and they went, they went USL, then they went to NASL. Um, so I knew Manny, obviously Amos had come in and known Amos from working against them in Portland, playing against them in Portland. So, you know, a lot of the people who were going to be influenced and you applied for the job and, you know, I met Bill Maguire, Dr. Bill Maguire, and that went really well. And the one thing that come through is he was a good guy. And I like the fact that he was very, very straight, you know, no BS, which is the way I like it. You know, I don't mind having a row with people if it gets things off your chest and you're open and honest. And, you know, me and Bill have worked really hard together over the last three years. But And we've had our moments. You know, the one thing about it, I say my piece and he does. And I, I like it that way. I know that there's there's no hidden agenda and he, he says it as he sees it. And if it's not good, he tells us. If it's good, he tells us. So the working relationship I've had with uh, Dr. Bill McGuire and the, the ownership group has been great. And... Um, if we can continue on the same way that we're going now and everybody's open up front and stick to the plan, I, I don't see any reason that we can't keep moving this on and incrementally getting better. First two years were tough. They were really tough. And you, you mentioned it earlier on. I don't think many people realise how far behind Minnesota United were in terms of behind the scenes. I remember the, the first couple of weeks, I think it was just before the Colorado game, and I get up to the National Sports Centre and I'm told, no, they're training in, over in Bielenberg, over in Woodbury. And it yeah. just seemed as though nothing was settled, that everything was helter-skelter. That must have been difficult yeah. to manage. It was. And, you know, then we had the, the issue with the field that we've got a disease on the grass. So when the weather had changed, we're thinking, here we go, let's get on the grass. We couldn't, I think it was nearly May before we go on the grass that this year. We're training at different places every day, different times, because obviously you were in the hands of other people. You know, we trained over in at Bielenberg and Woodbury, the indoor place there, and it was terrific. But if there was something going on, mums and toddlers were going on in the morning, we had to start at 12 o'clock. Now, you know, that's not ideal with a group of players. A, you don't know where you're playing and what time you're training is, is not ideal. Mm-hmm. But we got through it. You know, I, I say all the time, Cal, people forget that we won 10 games that first year. Now, the first two, two months were really, really tough. We, never, we can't get away from that. But for us to win 10 games that first year, there were still three, I think, three or four teams below us that year. So there was two or three teams, three or four teams in worse shape than we were. But, but it, it gave, us, gave us a platform. It gave us something that we knew where we were. We knew we had a lot of work to do. And I think once, when you get to that stage where everybody goes, this is not very good, everybody realises that we all have to step up and we all have to do what's you know, expected of us. People understand what their job and their roles and their responsibilities are within the group. And that's, that's basically, I think, as bad as it was, it gave us a good platform from which to build. And we have incrementally got better each transfer window, which is all you can, you can ask for. You know, if you're standing still in this league now, you're going backwards. You know, we were talking about it. I think me and you spoke about it before the season started. I think nearly every team in the Western Conference has either bought a DP in or two this year. So, you know, if we don't, we're trying to keep moving this forward, standing still is going backwards. But uh, we've had a good start and so far we're, we're doing well, Cal. Mm. There was a lot of lot of movement, a lot of players in and out over those first two years. The one which I want to ask you about, because it was a controversial one at the time, was Christian Ramirez going mm. to, to LAFC. 
why was that the right time to let him go when you did? Bottom line is Christian was the only one really with any real value within the league. And we realised that if we are going to move this thing around and start to bring in the likes of Sam Cronin and down the road, Ikepar and people like that, we had to have more flexibility with on the, even in the budget that we had, with the, you know, obviously the salary cap. And we got the best part of a million in, in, in sort of, let it be time gone, and, you know, money from LAFC. I know it was disappointing. And trust me, I even said this this year, if Christian Ramirez would have been in the team that we had last year, I think he'd have scored a lot of goals for us. But the situation and the time that we were, we were in, we had to do what was right for the club. And sometimes it's the guy who you don't want to let go of because that's why he's got the value that he has around the league. And, um, you know, people, I, I have people say, why don't you like Christian? I love Christian. I think he's a great kid. And, you know, nobody was more pleased that he went back when he went to LA because I know he wanted to go home. You know, and it probably didn't go as well for him then, but he started doing well at the Dynamo. I think he's a really good player, you know. And as I said, if Christian was in our team at this moment, the team that we have now, I think he would be very, very good and score goals. Mm. But at the time that we had to make the decision, you know, as I, I say a lot of times, I have to make the decisions that are the right decisions, not the popular ones, yeah. because that's the nature of being in my position. And, you know, obviously sometimes I have to, I have to force that. I have to force that because people within the club, you know, they, they realise the importance and the how popular people like Christian were. But, you know, for the for the for the benefit, the long term benefits of the squad of the first team, you have to make these decisions at times. Mm. Well, what did you say to him when the deal went through? I said, listen, I, I, I he was happy because he was going home. And people should forget that. You know, he was going back to LA where all his family are. And, you know, when we played him there the first year, you could tell he was so happy with being back home. He'd been away from home for a long, long time. It was a, it was a deal that was probably perfect for everybody at that particular time. And he knew this wasn't personal. And he, he, he obviously, which at that particular time, he, he thought, well, I'm, I'm moving up the ladder. This is a, an upgrade for me. And people would perceive that LAFC, the way that they put the, what they put together and the season that they just had. But, you know, as I say, it, there, there was nothing... There was no malice, malice in this. There was no. This was nothing to do with anything other than the fact that it was the right deal for everybody at the time. Mm. So we'll move on to, to 2019, which thus far has been the best season Minnesota United have had. What were the fundamental differences? I know there was a lot of changes, obviously, from a, a personnel point of view. I remember before you you saying to me that you, you brought in several leaders, and that was mm. one thing that was in my opinion at least, lacking in the first two seasons, that didn't seem to be a leader in the locker room from a player point of view. There also didn't seem to be enough nastiness. That We always seemed to be a little bit too kind. There was nobody, for example, Ozzy Alonso, somebody that you, you love to play with but you hated to play against him, you know, because he, yeah. he has got that little bit of nastiness about him. Yeah, and, you know, the first one was Sam Cronin. Sam wasn't with us long enough, but Sam, Sam started to bring a little bit more of a leadership quality within the group. And obviously, tragically for Sam, he, he had to pack in with his concussion situation. But he was the first that we brought in. We realised that we, start, we needed to bring, I call them men. We needed to bring men who, were, who, who hold everybody accountable, not only themselves, hold other people accountable. People who are not prepared, who are not prepared to take second best. People who are not prepared to let people underperform by their own standards. And the, the, the great thing about people like Ozzy coming into the club is Ozzy doesn't need to play well to have a go at somebody else. And that's a trait. Certain people are okay dishing stick out and getting after people when they are playing particularly well. Ozzy doesn't need to be playing well. He holds everybody accountable to the level that we all know everybody can play to. So that's been a big help. Remain came in, gave us energy, gave us athleticism. Young Gregos gave us a little bit of presence, six foot two, you know, gave us some energy within the middle of the park, real, real athleticism in there. I Capara, you know, then we brought Vito in. And you start to look at all these people, not only have they been successful, they've been used to winning wherever they've been. And, and the most important thing for these people is they, they don't come in just to play football and go, that's nice. They want to win. They want to come in and compete every single day in training as well. 
you know, and that's, we realised after the second year that if we're going to move this on, we had some tough decisions to make, but we had to start to get better on the field. I remember the, the, the second game of the season last year uh, in San Jose again, and we won the game and one of the guys asked, asked me, you were there at the press conference and people thought I was a little bit trite with my answer when he went, what are you doing different coaching coach? And I went, we've got better players. And ultimately, coaches matter. Don't let anybody kid you that they don't. They do. Because I still think they're one of the most important people in the football club because somebody has to be the leader of the group. But if you've got great players, you've got more chance of being a great coach and being a great team. And that, unfortunately, is always going to be the case. Now, you can help. You can take the team that should finish in the bottom half to mid-table or above. You can take a mid-table team and finish in the top two or three. But to win the whole thing and to consistently be there, you have to have really good players. And I think we have started to bring in, certainly the last year, good players within the football team that not only are good players for us, people in other teams know that these are good, really good players. So we're starting to get a little bit of respect back within the league. You're a very good um, individual who, who is able to put their arm around a, a player who may need a bit of an uplift from time to time. You're a very good man-manager. Has that been taken away a little bit from you, the, the pressure of having to do that because of the leadership of the, the individuals that you've signed, like an Aussie Alonso? Yeah, to an extent. But, you know, everybody's a little bit different. And, you know, certainly I think we've seen a lot of the younger ones. I look at Chase Gasper, you know, the last sort of, Month of the season was really tough for Chase, but he fought through it. Asani's coming through. Mason's now had a little bit of a, you know, it, it, this is a challenge for Mason now. The fact that Luis Amaria has come into the team and started to score goals. Aaron Schoenfield's come in, who's scored goals in this league in the past. These are all challenges. And I think working with the younger guys, that's where we're going to need a little bit of a, an understanding of, you know, it, this is all new to them. You know, they've been on that trajectory where everything's going great. And, and you, know, you know what football's like. The minute that you think you've got it cracked, that's when it comes and really gets after you. So, yeah. uh, you know, the, the arm around the shoulder will come in for certain individuals, but certainly the, the, the mood within the group and the determination to be successful within the group is this is the best we've had by a long, long way. Before we talk about Luis Amaria and how you found him, mm -hmm. you mentioned Hassani Dotson there. Not yeah. to put him in the shop window, but I, I personally think he could be the next one to, to go over to, to Europe and and not suggesting him and Tyler Adams or Weston McKinney are, are the same in terms of current ability, but there's enough about him where you could see that potentially happening. As a coach, does that worry you or does it please you? No, it has to please you. You know, we, 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 every time that you bring a player within the club, the fact that somebody else wants them, and if in Asani's case, if, if down the road there's an opportunity for him to go to Europe or go somewhere else that's progressing his career, that's only going to be good for us because he's been playing well enough for us for them people to take an interest. It's always had a great start. You know, I, I've said all along that the kid has a real, he just gets the game. He, he has a feel for the game in whatever position that you're playing. He's physically capable. You know, he's, he's got the mental side of it. You know, the next thing for him, and this is going to be tough, he's going to force his way in to playing into this team week in, week out. And at this moment in time, he's got Ozzy and Jan in front of him. He knows that's tough. He does give us, though, a little bit of flexibility to maybe go to games where we can go to a 4-3-3 or a 5-3-2, you know, where we can put another body in the middle of the park and do it without any... As I said before, when we, we were talking before the, the first couple of games and there was talk, people talking about, is Ozzy going to be fit? If Ozzy hadn't been fed, I'd have played Sony without a problem and not been worrying about his performance. He can play at this level. What we've got to do is get him in the team and consistently for him now to get himself in a position where he's, he's making it difficult for me to leave him out of the team. Yeah, um, top player. Really looking forward to seeing how he develops over the course of the next couple of years. What about Luis Amaria? You've got an interesting story of, of how you found him. Well, we didn't go down to look at Luis. There was another centre-forward that we'd been following who was playing in the other team when we went down there. It wasn't, they were playing against Catolica. And um, he was, the other guy was playing Piquito, the Liga, in, uh, in Ecuador. And it was a playoff game. And um, as I'm watching the game, I've been watching it 15 minutes. I rung Mark Watson up. I went, have a look what you've got on. See if we've got anything on Luis Almeria. 
he's the centre forward from Catholic. He's, he's a Dallas Sarsfield player, I think, from you know the Super Leader in Argentina. And he just kept catching me eye. And anyway, come the end of the 90 minutes, he'd scored a hat trick, could have had more. But he, he kept catching my eye for a, for a variety of reasons, a bit of everything. Great energy, worked really hard, good hold-up play, good combination play, but more importantly, took great positions up in the box. So, uh, you know, by the end of the 90 minutes, I'd, I'd sort of fallen out of love with the other centre-forward and fallen in love with Luis a little bit. And by the time the 90 minutes were up, Watto come back and said, you know, We've got some good stuff on him. He's got a good goal-scoring record. But it was only for a year, and I, and I didn't know what had happened in previous years. And circumstances, you know, it started really well. And then he'd gone to Valles as a young kid and couldn't force his way in. And there's no embarrassment in that because Valles is one of the big clubs in Argentina and he'd had big players in front of him. And then he'd gone out on loan and he'd had this purple patch. And, uh, you know, so it, it shows the benefit of actually going and being in the stadium. You know, I know a lot of people now like to do it from home and watch video and watch, you know, games live that way. There's nothing like being in the stadium because if I hadn't been in the stadium, trust me, that guy wouldn't have been in our team this 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 year this year because I wouldn't have seen him. Yeah, you might have looked at him on Scout and looked at some of his games and his goals and taken an interest, but I don't think we would have done it because we hadn't seen him live. So that you know, there's there's a bit of a story in that one actually. I think. Yeah, penultimate question. Before we let you go, um, a lot is made of of the Adrian Heath system and the way that you'd like to play. What is the Adrian Heath system and how have you consistently improved it every year? Well, I, going back to my days in Spain, that was the first change that I got between... People talk about it now, like players playing between the lines and players playing in pockets. When I went to Spain, I didn't know anything about that. But English, you know, it was 4 4 Long straight balls, second balls, get the ball wide, get the ball in the box. And by the way, that's making a comeback at this moment in time, the way that game is. Mm. Because we've gone so far the other way on the on the back of Barcelona with the tick attack of football now. So certain teams, Atletico Madrid, spring to mind, were playing very aggressive forward football. Um, but no, I, I think, you know, the playing in between the lines, playing in pockets, working on overloads, getting the extra man in certain parts of the field working the ball through the thirds, possession base from the back, through midfield, into the front. But the one thing that I think we've got away from a little bit, and as I'm, I'm saying to you, not me, but in general, you know, on the back of Barcelona playing that beautiful football, then we forgot a little bit about what the game's about. The, the game is about scoring goals. But the game is about getting the ball from this end of the field to the other end of the field consistently. And not everybody can do it like Barcelona, trust me. Nearly every manager would love their team to go out and go, yeah, we've played, you've got 80% possession, we won 3-0, we've had 5,000 passes and we've played the opposition off the ball. Unfortunately, a lot of teams can't play like that. Finding out what your team can be, you know, somebody asked me the other day, I think you were at the press conference, that our possession's gone down, but I said, but our results have gone up. You know, it, possession's one thing. Having possession in the right areas of the field and having possession with a purpose and possession with a meaning is another thing. And uh, at the moment, we're, we're finding the right balance within that. Uh, finally, Gaffer, not, not to age you, but you're 60 next year. <laughs> what, what's next? How, how long can you keep doing this? And, and what do you see in your um, future? Well, 60, you know, what was Fergie? 70s, Ranga, 70s, Roy Hodgson, mm. 73. I saw a piece with Bill Balachet the other day. I think he's 67. He's doing okay. As long as I get up in the morning, I can, I can, I can still maintain this enthusiasm that I have to get out of bed and go to work. I will do it for as long as possible. Um, the one thing that this, this uh, terrible virus has given the world at this moment has made me realise how much I love my job. You know, when something gets taken away from you. And that's something I think that I hope that the players realise that being a professional footballer, we, it's, a, it's the best job in the world. Don't take it for granted and make the most of it when you've got it. And uh, certainly this little, even though it's only been three or four weeks so far, has given me uh, a better understanding of how much I love the job that I have. I love the people I work with. I love the people I work for. Um, so hopefully that we can, I would like this to be my last job. But I don't want it to be my last year. I'd like this to be 
the next four or five years still to be here. And if I am, it's because we've been doing really, really well. Mm. Gaffer, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. I know uh, these are uh, precarious and unprecedented times at the moment, so we really appreciate yeah. your time. Before we let you go, um, a quick message to the fans. I know it's something you, you want to get across. Yeah, I think it's, firstly, thank them for what they did last year. They were an integral part of our great home record. The atmosphere within the stadium was second to none. It's something that you know as well as I do, Cal. When we go around the country with the group, playing in other teams, people talk about not only our stadium, but the atmosphere within it. And that's a huge credit to our supporters who've been magnificent. And lastly, I just wish them all well. I hope they stay safe. Let's do what we're told. Let's stay indoors. Let's isolate. Let's give the people who are at the sharp end, the first responders, these doctors and nurses who have to put up with this terrible virus every single day. Let's give them all the help we can get. And just be safe and look after each other. And uh, let's make sure that when we come through the other side of this, we take up some of the good things. And I think I feel as though there's a real togetherness come around, not only around where I live here, out in Wayzata, but certainly in the UK. My mum was telling me that how people are looking after each other. And I just hope we can keep that going long after this virus is gone because uh, the world will be a better place for it. <laughs>